The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. With debt markets shutting down and banks stuck trying to move billions in risky loans, private lenders like Blue Owl are, for now, virtually the only game in town for buyout shops looking to fund their next deal. Welcome to The Exchange, conversations with people of interest to business and financial professionals around the world. I'm Jonathan Guilford, a columnist at Reuters Breaking Views, the global financial commentary arm of Thomson Reuters, and I'm coming to you from New York City. For this week's episode, I sat down with Mark Lipschultz, co-founder and co-president of investment firm Blue Owl Capital, which houses one of the leading non-bank corporate lenders. Mark previously co-founded direct lender Owlrock, which merged with Dial Capital and SPAC Altamar acquisition to form Blue Owl. Before that, he was a banker at Goldman Sachs and then a member of buyout shop KKR. We talked about recent ruptures in the debt markets, why investment banks are losing market share, and just what it actually means to be a direct lender these days. Mark, welcome to The Exchange. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you very much for having me. Great to be here. Absolutely. So you co-founded Blue Owl and predecessor firm Alrock, one of the biggest private non-bank lenders in the business. But what it means to be in that business has changed a lot in the last few years, and especially if you go back all the way to the financial crisis. So could you just walk us through what exactly is a private or direct lender? Very happy to. Uh, something I spend lots of time thinking about. So a private or direct lender, at, at the end of the day, is really what I think most people would picture as banking of old, which is to say it's really about an institution having a working and, and, and probably broad understanding and relationship with a borrower and providing that capital from their balance sheet. Now, in stark contrast to banks, we don't have any depositor capital. We don't use much leverage. So we don't have any of the systematic risks, connections that banks would otherwise have. But at the end of the day, the, the mental model people have of, hey, the bank knows the borrower, that's really the, the basis of what we do. We, we make a loan and we are the lender for the duration, from the moment we make that loan until the moment that loan gets paid back. It's a real partnership. And the nature of the loans that you guys are making has, that's changed recently, right? We think we've seen, especially over the past year or two, Blue Owl especially leading some of these fairly big LBO loans, kind of up in the sizes of billions of dollars, which feels new. Could you talk us through a little bit about how the industry has grown to be able to take down that kind of size? Absolutely. There's been a, a very significant change in the role that private credit plays in the whole capital markets ecosystem and in, in this ability to finance, as you said, larger loans, larger private equity or, or non-private equity transactions for that matter. And I think there's been a couple of forces at work that have driven that change over you know, rough justice the last decade. For, first of all, direct lending itself is a relatively young industry. If we go back to before the financial crisis, it it really barely existed. Then we went through the crisis where there wasn't much financial activity at all. And then coming out of the crisis, I would say in many regards is the origin story of direct lending as, as any sort of substantive asset class. 
And so part of this, of course, is, is the business just young and therefore it's been evolving and growing. A meaningful part of, of, of the drive and, and the resulting growth, I think has been twofold. At its highest level, I think it has been about finding a more effective, efficient model to match up someone who wants to provide capital to someone who wants to borrow capital and do that in a relationship where, again, the lender remains a partner to the business. Remember, this is a market. If I go back to my days at KKR, I started at KKR in 1995. And the idea that you wouldn't work with essentially a set of banks to borrow your capital was a nearly non-existent idea. And over the next, you know, really 20 years, the banking market itself evolved in a way, which was the banking market itself went down the path of moving from being a lender to really providing a syndication service. Nothing wrong with that decision. It was a strategic decision by banks saying, listen, lending is fine, but we can actually do better with our capital by underwriting, selling the loans, collecting a fee, and doing it again, and doing it again, and doing it again. And that became the leverage that became the leverage finance business. And so we have this long running evolution away from banks really being the lenders to private equity firms or other private enterprises to being really an intermediary helping put together someone who wants to hold a loan with someone who needs to borrow capital. So that opened up the door for saying, well, gee, if that's the end state here, which is we're gonna rematch a lender and a borrower then maybe we ought to just do that and form pools of capital that will in fact work directly with those borrowers and provide them the capital they need. So I think it's a natural response to an evolving market where a set of participants, the banks historically shifted out of the business of really being balance sheet lenders. It created an opportunity for a new set of participants to be those balance sheet lenders. But that kind of sets up the market as we think of it today, right? Like we think of there being this syndicated market, which, like you say, is the banks acting as intermediaries between a borrower and this large pool of small investors who are going to take pieces of those loans that the banks write. And we kind of contrast that with what we call, I guess, the private credit or direct lender market, which is you guys coming in, like you say, with your own pools of capital to just have that direct relationship. I just wonder, you know, you kind of mentioned you worked at KKR for years. Before that, you were even a banker at Goldman Sachs. I guess wearing each of those hats, I was wondering if you could walk through for me, like, what does that decision tree look like? Why does somebody decide to go with you guys instead of with the banks when they're getting towards doing a deal? So the evolution in the use of private markets and syndicated markets, I, you know, I, I'd headline with an important point. You know, there's not one right answer. It's not as if private capital solutions are the solution for every opportunity, nor clearly are syndicated solutions the solution for every opportunity. There's there's a need for both. You know, this is not about one, it often gets set up as sort of one versus the other. And I, I of course, in any given financing, it may very well come down to a borrower picking between a syndicated solution and a private solution. But I think they're actually very complementary solutions in providing a functioning capital market and providing capital through different environments. Take today. Today, we at Blue Owl, Owl Rock, are very active in providing capital financing at a time when there is, for all intents and purposes, no syndicated market available, You know, nearly period, full stop. So part of this is both markets 
have their their role and at different moments will maybe play bigger or lesser roles. But the market share gains, the and I think the enduring role that private credit is playing and will continue to play, I think in part stems from something and I, I by no measure taking you know credit for us at Owl Rock Blue Owl for this, but but I think that we are one of the earlier adopters of this philosophy of look, let's take direct lending, a market that had been nascent and then started to grow a bit more in the post-financial crisis era, but still lived its life mostly as a lender of last resort and often operated out of pools of capital that were sort of modest in scale relative the demands of borrowers, certainly of the larger private equity firms. When we created OwlRock, what we set out to do, aspirational admittedly, was to go from being lender of last resort, that is to say the lender for a company that sort of couldn't get capital from a mainstream source, to being a lender of first choice, so that we would be chosen by the very best companies with the very best sponsors to be their lender. And that's a very meaningful pivot that has occurred. And to the comment you made earlier, you know, you look at the course of this year, the role that private credit has played in the capital markets to in this year, private lenders, and we frankly have led a lot of these financings, are the source of capital for the largest take private transactions in the marketplace. That's a very big change in the role of this, of private capital and of direct lending from where we were, you know, five and 10 years ago as an industry. Right. And I was hoping you could help me understand that, right? Because it feels like at the moment, almost every story comes back to being a debt story in some way. You know, you see Elon Musk might actually be about to buy Twitter and it's a disaster because people are saying, oh, the banks are going to lose hundreds of millions of dollars on these loans that they underwrote for that deal. Or you look at just this quarter, we saw M&A activity kind of fall off a cliff and people blamed it on the lack of availability of credit. I'm just trying to understand how unusual is what's happening in the debt markets right now? This sort of cycle of open markets, closed markets has always been around and, and sometimes more severe than others as, as we all know. But I think part of the reason that the direct lending model works so well, and I think has a very enduring and important place in the capital markets, is exactly this episodic nature of liquid markets versus the more durable nature of the private market. That is to say, we remained active lenders to companies through the pandemic. We provided additional capital where appropriate to companies through the pandemic to support them and bridge through those difficult times. We today, in a market where there's so little available in liquid markets, we're providing capital for companies that are gonna be uh, acquired and grown and developed. Otherwise, there'd just be no activity. So it, it probably is true that credit markets right at this moment are one of the primary constraints on M&A activity, but direct lending is creating the operable and active and available solutions were not for the evolution and growth of this market and what we do at, at, at Owl Rock, there, there'd be really almost no function in M&A market because where would the financing come from uh, outside of the largest you know, investment grade companies? So I do think that the M&A market and, and the credit market are attached, but actually we're really the enabler 
And if you look at the transactions this year, if you look at the take privates of things like Anaplan and Zendesk and Ping Identity, that they're being funded by direct lenders. In fact, in all three of those cases, we're, we're leading those financings, for example. Right. And that's an interesting part of this, because like you say, there's this certain lack of cyclicality on the private credit side versus what we're seeing in the syndicated market. And I think sometimes, you know, to be frank, you talk to some of the guys like the LeFim folks at the banks, and they just, you know, will look with like wide eyes, like, I can't believe these guys are still putting this much volume into the market when we're totally shut down. What is it that allows there to be that difference? What's the dislocation for the banks? There's really a foundational difference between the role a bank plays, that syndication role, and the role that direct lenders that we play as a principal. And, and I think right in this is the part that explains that divergence of why we can be active and available in a market today when the banks are not. Um, and it gets down to this. We are in the business of making a loan with a fundamental and deep understanding of the credit and a negotiated agreement on the terms of that credit, both the economic and very importantly, non-economic terms. The, we pay a lot of attention to the documentation, the constraints, the, the terms of the loan. But we do that with an eye toward holding that loan for five to seven years. That's our decision-making framework. So we operate, I guess what I would say is what we're doing today is, is so imminently logical to us because we're looking today and saying, gee, these are the best risk rewards we've seen since our inception. That is to say that the magnitude, the quality of these businesses that are being acquired and the scale of the equity checks and therefore the cushions for people like us as lenders added together with obviously it's floating rate. So we're beneficiaries of rising rates or certainly protected. Our investors are from rising rates and spreads, of course, widen in markets that are more constrained. We're seeing the best risk reward opportunities we have seen taking a five to seven year look. But if you're a bank doing syndication, your decision making framework, which is to say their decision is as rational for them to be inactive as our decision is to be as active as frankly our capital would logically permit, given the quality of the opportunity. But both are right through the lens of the person making the decision because the banks, their decision is not, will this loan get paid back five to seven years from now with whatever uncertainties may exist between here and there? Their decision is in three months when this transaction is gonna close, will there be people that want to buy these loans at the price that I set? If not, I'm still gonna sell them, I'm gonna lose money. So the, the fundamental credit and question of whether the payback will occur five to seven years from now doesn't, of course, it's relevant to decision and you know, a credit decision, but it actually isn't relevant to the economic decision. The banks simply have to decide, am I confident I will be able to sell those loans profitably or not, whatever may happen to the company in the next five to seven years. Right. It's interesting, right? Because it's like you say, you know, you guys are taking a long term view here. But at the same time, even though the banks are making that shorter term, can I just put two sides of the market together decision? They're also they have kind of more duration risk than you do in the kind of immediacy here, right? Like they can get stuck with, oh, we made this commitment at this date and now we're going to have to 
kind of swallow losses on that because we're not actually holding this loan. We can't just sit there and clip coupons on it. We have to sell that on to someone. It's a really huge issue that, you know, it's not, it's not a, a flaw in the liquid markets, but it's a reality that the syndicated markets, therefore, are always going to be much more episodic. They're going to be much more on-off because the point you're, you're, you're describing so well, this kind of notion of duration, if you're going to have to transact sometime in the next three to six months, you're extremely sensitive to the near-term, medium-term market conditions. If your focus, which ours is, is, hey, is this a foundationally good business for the long term where our capital will be safe and we'll earn a return, then that, that volatility in the near term really isn't relevant to our decision, certainly doesn't bear on our economics. Our economics will be dictated by what happens over the course of years, not the course of months. But I mean, there must be a cyclical aspect to the business just insofar as you're tied to the broader economy, right? Like, it feels like we are seeing some reports that, you know, your peers like Apollo, like Blackstone, have pulled back a little or they're demanding higher interest rates or the size of kind of loan that they're offering right now is kind of pulling back. And I mean, I would guess that would be natural just because you're going to see corporate fundamentals deteriorate as we head into, you know, an, a possible inflationary downturn. I mean, am I getting that right? Has there been this pullback? Because definitely, even just like over the past month or so, it, it feels like it, there has been. Yes, there's decidedly been a pullback. Uh, and that is, say, a pullback in the available amount of capital. Uh, it actually is creating a very interesting dynamic because the constraint on, for example, you know, us today at, at Owl Rock at Blue Owl is not an absence of attractive opportunities. It's actually an absence of sufficient capital to meet those uh, opportunities. And I'd say that is symptomatic. In fact, I know it to be symptomatic of the market at large, just observing the way transactions are occurring or not occurring. There's no doubt that there's a few forces going on. So first of all, of course it is true that in a deteriorating economy, in a world of greater uncertainty, there has to be greater risk. And in fact, in a world of a deteriorating economy, that has to mean the marginal company is more likely to get in trouble. Like all that must be true. And you know something, I, I know this will sound so ridiculous, but one thing about the credit business is it's in fact about credit. And uh, even that, as, as absurd as it sounds, I go back to the origins of, of Owl Rock. And one of the things we came in and I, I think have done you know, well, and I don't say that with any complacency, uh, or any pride, but rather just sort of an understanding of our mission was to say it's all about credit. It's all about the depth of that work and the selection. You know, we've we've originated about $60 billion in loans. We've looked at over 6,000 loans to make those decisions. And credit is always front and center for us. And of course, that means every decision should be incorporating the latest information. But here's the the the, the thing that I find so curious. When people say, oh, well, you know, now we are really tightening our standards. Now we're really being more selective. You know, we always look at each other and say, wait a minute, I, I thought that's what we're always supposed to be doing. We, we certainly always have. Our standards have always been very high for what we want to lend to. It's not following the market momentum. It's saying what's a foundationally good business that we want to lend to. With that said, of course, spreads you know, widen in an environment like this. That's terrific. We're, we're, we're the beneficiaries of that. Uh, of course, because we have finite capital relative to the opportunity, by definition, where you ultimately get to in terms of the loans you'll make are 
that much higher grade, which is to say we're lending to that much larger an enterprise with that much bigger a sponsor with that much better a business. So we love all those dynamics, but they shouldn't be because someone, you know, said, hey, turns out you know, we should pay attention to the credits. That, that's really the heart and soul of doing the business right in the first place. I guess the thing that feels surprising sometimes when you're an outside kind of observer looking into this is, like you say, you know, the business is the credit. But we saw private lenders do things that basically the regulated banks would would just never go near, right? Like um, you mentioned Anaplan, uh, you guys led Avalara, deals like that where you're lending to a company based not on its profitability, but on its recurring revenue. And, you know, you kind of, you saw pricing come down in the in the private le- uh, lending market. You saw terms get a little more aggressive. I think to some people, there was a worry like, oh, is this sector, you know, beginning to kind of get over its skis a little in terms of the terms being offered? I mean, what would your response be to that? Well, let's start with the beginning of that about, you know, doing things the banks wouldn't do, wouldn't be allowed to do and parse that apart a little bit. First off, what they wouldn't do, back to this point of frame of reference, is they're not going to make a loan as good as they think that loan is if they're not feeling confident they're going to be able to sell it profitably when that transaction closed. So take Anaplan, take private transaction. These things take time, right? So the risk for a bank is by the time it closes, can I sell my loans profitably? That's not the question for us or the others that participated in that financing. It's, is this a great business? It's a spectacular business. And so, first of all, the decision-making framework is different for the banks versus a direct lender. In addition, you made note of what they might be allowed to do. So that's the regulatory overlay. Well, again, remember, we're in very different places. We have these permanent pools of capital. They are matched to be able to provide this type of loan over a long term. There is no depositors involved. There's no, there's nobody coming in and sort of saying, run on the bank. Our leverage is way lower than a bank's. So it's logical that the way we would all assess an opportunity and a risk taking a five to seven year view of the fundamentals and not having any depositor capital and therefore any sort of government backstop, this is all just investors making risk-based decisions that, that we would have a foundationally and fundamentally different view of what's worth putting capital in. It's, it's really the equivalent to private equity to public equity. Why has private equity blossomed into a multi-trillion dollar industry from a very small backwater decades ago? Because it offers a more enduring solution and the better home for certain companies. Same thing for private, private credit, private debt. It's also, there's a question of the um, advantageousness of it from the capital side, right? So you know, like you say, you have this permanent pool of capital. Other folks follow kind of different models depending on the on the structure of the fund. But in general, there is this seeming attraction for capital to be parked in private markets as opposed to public. Um, and I think there are kind of two pieces of this, right? There's, I guess, what people have typically referred to as an illiquidity premium, which is you expect a higher return if you're providing capital and that's getting locked up in a private investment uh, that you can't easily and liquidly get out of. And then the other side of the illiquidity premium, I guess, almost seems like it goes in the other direction because it's advantageous 
for certain capital providers to have their money tied up in a place where maybe it's not getting marked to market, you know, all the time, every t- every tick of the market. So I was kind of wondering, like, what are the puts and takes there? Like, why has so much capital rushed into this? And kind of those two sides of the illiquidity premium, how did those play into it? Well, the sector has certainly grown, and, and not to pick at words, but, you know, the idea that so much capital's rushed in is is more a common thread, I would say, than, than, than the facts bear out. Back to this point, well, it is true that that private markets have grown, that is to say that private credit and direct lending have grown. The demand for that capital, which is primarily private equity, has grown dramatically more. So at the end of the day, any market, of course, is about supply and demand. So what's happening in this market right now Demand, that is to say the dry powder in the hands of private equity firms, is a couple trillion dollars. The available capital, truly available capital, harder to quantify in the private direct lending market, very small. I mean, a single digit percentage of what's available, what's demanded in terms of matching against that private equity marketplace. And so while it is true that the pools have grown, we're we're woefully behind in terms of being able to meet the needs of this growing private equity or just private market ecosystem in general. And so I, I start with saying supply and demand. Now let's add that the syndicated market has essentially closed. So now supply of capital that used to include that very large part of the capital markets itself is gone. There's a tremendous imbalance in supply and demand that is very, very net favorable for we as lenders. So, so setting aside the kind of illiquidity, illiquidity, I would just, I'd start with kind of a balance of the equation question that looks both sides of the equation, not sort of just the amount of capital that's been formed in one side of it. Because effectively what you're saying is that feeds through to just a massive demand spike for the capital that you can provide, right? Because the syndicated side is shut down. So does that, does that kind of lead to what you were saying earlier about oh, you know, maybe the volume that you can provide in each loan or in aggregate has pulled back a little bit with the downturn. It has. You know, you look back and you and you look at transactions that were being done strictly in the private market, you know, multi-billion dollar financings th- this year included. And today it's ever harder for people to assemble finances that size. Now we're very active. We're, we're regularly leading billion dollar plus financings but you know we've also led multi-billion dollar financings and those are increasingly difficult to do because of two reasons one the there are a number of participants that had been active in the market that frankly are capital constrained it, it may get repurposed or described in some sort of you know selectivity i'm always a little reminded of the great movie spinal tap and you know being interviewed and they say you know, the interviewer says, listen, you know, when you last toured the U.S., you're playing 10,000 seat arenas, 12,000 seat arenas. This time around, you know, you're playing 2,000 seat you know, venues, 3,000 seat venues. Do you think the popularity of Spinal Tap is waning? And there's a pause. Oh, no, 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 no. Uh, I think we're just becoming more selective. <laughs> and so there's an element to, you know, listen, if you don't have the capital, then you can describe it as being more selective. There is no doubt that available capital in the private markets has diminished significantly, and there are participants who were highly active six months ago that are barely active or maybe not active at all today. So take that out of the system. That reduces available capacity. In addition, don't forget what I think is one of the most important and admittedly a little bit subtle uh, element of this. 
in a market that is now does, is not functioning well, capital markets are not functioning well, voluntary repayments, people coming along and saying, hey, I want to repay this because I can refinance cheaper. Hey, I'm selling my company, so I got to repay this debt. That drops precipitously. So all that capital that at least people like ourselves or, you know, uh, or someone like say an Aries that, that has some comparable pools of capital, we don't have the repayments to go and redeploy. So there's two things happening. There's a bunch of people that just don't have capital. And those of us who have lots of capital still don't have or near as much capital to lend out because we don't have the, the redeployment capital. We don't have the money being repaid today to simply turn around and lend back out. It's interesting, right? Because yeah, like you say, it, it becomes that kind of recycling, that that circle of you're making loans, you're getting people taking those loans down early by repaying so that they can refinance possibly in the syndicated market. And it feels like those two markets are linked, right? In a certain sense. They're absolutely linked. And I think in a way that has not been front of mind for you know most people that touch this marketplace. So you're, it's a very important theme, I think, in point, which is those markets are very linked because deployment of new funds is only you know half the equation. Redeployment of prior funds is the other half of the equation. I don't mean that quite mathematically, but but let me just take you through a mathematical example, just using kind of generalized numbers. Let's just take a pool of capital that's let's say twenty billion dollars of loans, and that twenty billion dollars, well, they have five to seven year state of maturities during times where markets are really you know, kind of moving along like they were the last several years until this year. The average duration of a loan that we were experiencing was more like three years. So if you think about what that would imply, it means that out of $20 billion of loans, just again, to pick up a number to use, it would mean that like $6 billion, or if you want to use a four-year duration, $5 billion of those loans were being repaid every year and therefore could be lent back out. Well, if I, again, if I just took a $20 billion pool and I thought about what successful fundraising for someone with a $20 billion pool looks like, raising a $5 billion fund would be a pretty successful fundraise. So what I've just described is a world where when things are working, if you raise 5 billion, you actually have 10 billion to lend out because you have 5 billion that got paid back. In a world where those repayments drop very, very sharply as they logically do in a market like this, I mean, I've, I've quite literally cut just about in half the capacity that that lender has to offer to the marketplace. And I mean, when you're going through the pieces of this, like you say, so there has been something of a pullback from the direct lenders. Would you attribute that mostly to this kind of supply demand or recycling issue in terms of the availability of capital for you guys? Or do you think possibly among some of your peers, there has been some kind of repricing of how they think about risk, how they think about the ways that they're, they're pricing and selecting these credits? Because I know it sounds like you're somewhat skeptical about the the kind of selectivity idea. Well, I'm only, I'm not skeptical of the selectivity idea as much as it's a, you know, it, the job done right, you would always be highly selective. Now that's different from widening terms, right? So I think we should be, be, be very focused here on this point. We look at the bar as always working first, second, and third to protect capital. I mean, this is a time of uncertainty. This, you know, this is a time where, evermore safety matters. And in fact, those who have been already highly selective are the ones that are gonna you know, significantly outperform. Mind you, since our inception, our realized loss rate has been five basis points 
per annum across our platform. So there are different strategies in credit. So, so to be clear, I think it's a combination of available capital. That explains you know, a lot of the kind of reduction in availability and maybe some of the people that describe that as selectivity. Part of it is people who were you know, going very aggressively in terms of kind of ex the credit, what credit risk they were taking by our measure, not something we would have done. We, we had a very different view at Owl Rock and Blue about where we wanted to be, which was on the, the kind of most protected end of this, not just it's not a, a risk-bearing market, of course it is. But you know, the, the, there's absolutely a group of lenders who are looking in, at their portfolios and saying, oh my gosh, what have I done? So I don't doubt that there's many people who are being much more selective. They, I, I would, I was simply, I was simply proffering that I think done right, you probably would have always largely been much more selective. This is the thing though, right? Because the way that this works and the way that we would see, I guess, stress come through the system, uh, I mean, just the nature of direct lending seems to have changed so much in recent years. I don't know that I have a good mental model for what does it look like when one of these, maybe like these smaller peers says, okay, we're about to fall out of bed because we mispriced risk in the pre-inflation era or in that transition era or something like that. Like, how does that kind of pressure begin to move through a loan book if one of these lenders has been maybe just a little too aggressive? Well, the beauty of the private market structure versus the bank model that we were talking about before is it, it, it only matters to that firm and to its investors, and it stops there. I mean, at the end of the day, the loan's been made. The company has the capital, and they're going to repay it or or they're not. Now, we're talking about an instance where maybe there's issues with the company repaying the capital, in which case the people who have put up that capital with the expectation of you know getting their principal back plus a return are not going to have a very good experience. But that's where it stops. You know, at the end of the day, there's no it doesn't cascade into all kinds of other places. It sits in one pool of capital that's long dated, whether it be a fund or a, a BDC, you know, in which case it's it's even longer dated by definition. Um, so, but the beauty of it is there's no, no next domino. It just means those people who didn't make good credit decisions or took too much risk during the boom times, their investors aren't gonna do too well. So it just starts to look like other traditional asset classes. If you pick the right manager, you do real well. And if you pick the wrong manager, you don't do so well and everything in between. But remember, you know, the thing I would say about this market that's so distinctive sitting here today, if you have done your credit work right and if you are continuing to do your credit work right, this is the purpose built. This is why we built, you know, Owl Rock. This is why, you know, we, in terms of where we thought direct lending can and should go, it, it, it has a real role to play, which is to say it's about seniority, senior secured lenders. So therefore being at the top of the capital structures, being the most protected place you can be within capital structures of this type and doing that on a floating rate basis. So as rates have gone up, remember all of the lenders who are in the floating rate business, they've taken the loans they did last year, the returns have all gone up on those loans. So if you've done your credit work right, this is a very positive time for the business, but it's all contingent on that credit work. So it is a time for caution. It is a time for safety, 
but this is exactly what our business was built to do, which was to thrive in a time of more uncertainty with rising rates. That's exactly what it performs for investors. Right. And I think an interesting question of, you know, if you guys are able to kind of stand pat here and continue deploying into this market, we've seen, for instance, kind of Apollo supporting the Citrix syndication by taking a big piece of that down through their private credit fund, right? We've seen these kind of hybrid loans where you have like, you know, firstly and secondly, one is going private, one is going syndicated. I mean, do you think that as the banks continue to try to move some of these difficult loans uh, that they have stuck on their balance sheets right now, like Twitter, if it ends up happening, is that an opportunity for direct lenders to kind of come in and pull down a piece of that? Or is this something that's kind of maybe a bit outside of the ambit, like the whole thing is just too overstretched? It can be an opportunity for the right strategies. That is to say that what you're describing, you know, sort of taking down a capital structure that just doesn't really work in today's environment anymore. You know, I would say from our point of view, it's an episodic opportunity, but by and large, where, where we live is in a place where it's, hey, look, we want to do deep work on an originated credit, love the company, it matched the right capital structure, more so than kind of capture a dislocated structure. But but that opportunity absolutely exists. We've certainly, as a firm and many other lenders, have stepped in to take maybe what were just wrong priced capital structures around good businesses, and by buying them right and fixing the documents can end up actually in a better place we would have been than we would have been if we had originated the loan in the first place. Then there's the more opportunistic participants, and and I think that's a perfectly good and attractive model that might go into situations that are bit murkier, messier, but you can get them on compelling terms today. And that's why I say there's a range of strategies. Our strategies are more centered on high performing companies with what we would consider by the measure of this market, conservative cap structures, low loan to value cap structures. But there's providers who are very skilled who are stepping into these you know, much more difficult situations and trying to harvest value out of them. And I'm sure some of them will be very successful. Absolutely. And it's kind of funny seeing, you know, the direct lenders step into these situations that are difficult for the banks at the same time that you guys are taking market share. So I just kind of wonder, you know, you worked at Goldman all those years ago. How do you think your old colleagues feel about you guys taking share in this in this leverage finance market? Well, safe to say we um, aspire to the day where Blue Owl, Matt, you know, matters to Goldman Sachs as a competitive matter. We have, they're an extraordinary firm. We do lots of business with them. Uh, as I said, I, 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 I only hope for the day where we register as relevant. Um, but writ large, as direct lenders, sure, we've picked up share. But again, let me come back to a couple numbers. If you go back about 10 years, some numbers I looked at suggested that, you know, direct lending was a you know, mid single digit share of, of the lending market. So, you know, pretty small, kind of that backwater, probably more the lender of last resort in most cases. Today, we're, and I say today being the last macro number, I'm sure today literally our percentages are much higher because there is no syndicated market, but um, about 18% of the market. So the preponderance of the market is still the liquid capital markets in total, not literally today, given what we discussed, but the banks have a big role to play the syndicated loans, high yield, they do, and in our opinion, always will. I think our role will continue to grow. We've gone from 
you know, almost no role to a very meaningful but still minority role. And most importantly to me, the change that's occurred has been back to this point about lender of last resort to lender of first choice, proving the value proposition. And I feel confident to many users we have and anyone that you know gives us the chance, I think we can prove there is a reason to use the direct lending solution for certain, maybe even many circumstances. Right, that feels like a good place to leave it. Uh, Mark, if people want to find you online, uh, where can they look? First, thank you very much for, for having me here today. It's been a real pleasure, always is talking with someone as informed and, and insightful as you, so thank <laughs> you. Um, they can, and I mean that, and and, and uh, people can please you know follow me at uh, Mark Lipschultz on Twitter, at Mark Lipschultz, M-A-R-C-L-I-P-S-C-H-U-L-T-Z. And I'll try to engage as best I can and continue to share thoughts and updates. Fantastic. Mark, thank you so much for your time. Appreciate it. Have a great day. Thanks for tuning in. This podcast was produced by Thomas Shum in Hong Kong. Subscribe to The Exchange and our sister podcast, The Views Room, on Megaphone, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen. Catch up with our latest views and much more on BreakingViews.com and on Twitter, where our handle is at BreakingViews.